Hey guys! It is Monday evening and we are getting ready for uh, another episode of Chapter Chat. This is our online professional book club that Michael and I are are just starting. So I am hoping some of you will be able to join. I know it's a kind of like a holiday weekend still. Um, so I don't know how many people are available, but Michael and I are very excited to get started with chapter one of the book that we are doing in our online book club. So we are going to, hello everyone, thanks for joining. We're gonna get Michael on here. So he should be joining momentarily. Let's see here. No, let's see if he's on here. So, hope you guys have all had a great weekend. Hopefully you had a long weekend. I hope you've been able to relax and enjoy. Um, hopefully time with friends and family and all of that. We uh, had a lot of friends over today from church and we um, had a pool party. So, I've been in the sun all day. Um, which is kind of draining, but um, I am super excited to be here in my home office and be uh, waiting here for Michael so we can start uh, episode two of Chapter Chat. So I don't see him yet, so we'll just wait another minute. Um, so we, um, I have lots of notes that I took um, on this chapter. This is kind of an intense chapter. Let me know in the comments if any of you um, are following along and actually reading the book um, with us, if any of you read chapter, chapter one. Last week was our first episode and we talked about the um, introduction. And so it was a really powerful introduction and I thought we'd talk for a half hour and we talked for an hour and 10 minutes. So I think there he is. Let me add Michael to be joining us. Um, so I, I I always say, I think we'll talk for 30 minutes and we always talk for at least 60. There he is. Well, here we are. How's Let's it going? do it. Good. I just heard you saying how uh, we planned for a half hour, but we talked, we talked for an hour. <laughs> Let's do it again. Well, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know. I mean, do we like the sound of our own voice? Maybe a little too much, but... Um, hey, it, it's the topic. It's the it's topic. It's the topic, and the fact that I found somebody who's as passionate about this and that we can have a conversation despite living a thousand miles apart, I just, I look forward to this, and um, I was just saying to everybody, I know it's kind of like the end of a holiday weekend. Maybe a lot of people didn't work today, you know, and so I don't know if we'll have a good turnout, but at least this is taped, and so we can, you know, people can watch it at a later time. Yes, yes. I, I definitely got a lot of requests about at, uh, asking if there's going to be a recording. So definitely uh, share the link with your guys' friends and yep. invite yep. them here. Obviously, you can watch it recorded, but there's nothing better than the live show. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that way you can join in, ask questions, um, you know, make comments as we go. So since this is kind of, I, I don't know, Michael, what did you think? I kind of felt like this was an intense chapter. A very, very intense chapter. No, so basically, just me. Okay. So, so basically, when we're talking about the topic of how children succeed and what to do with education, mm -hmm. you cannot discuss this topic without talking about race and socioeconomic in this country. Mm -hmm. So obviously, those two things are going to come into the topic. And he really, and Paul Tuff, he got to give it to him. He tackled it head on. 
He did. So, and it's that whole idea of the achievement gap, right? The, why? It, 100%. Look at um, why um, some students succeed, why some schools succeed, you know, and have a really high graduation rate, and why there are some schools that just um, don't seem to do well. And what was so fascinating is this chapter started out with a pretty interesting almost like a case study um, uh, that Elizabeth Dozier, who became a principal and was going to tackle one of the, the um, poorest schools in um, the, the southern part of Chicago area. What was it? Um, uh, I think the city or the suburb is Roseland. Is that what it was? I believe so. Yeah, Roseland. And it was Fanger High School on the yes. south side of Chicago. And it was so interesting, wasn't it, Michael, that they talked about how because, you know, only like one third of their students even graduate, you know, and they just were for like 16 years in a row, they were on probation because they just could not, you know, make it. And so uh, the, the, the mayor came in and they just poured money. I mean, poured money into this school. And guess what? Nothing worked. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. And yep. that's what's so fascinating about this chapter is trying to figure out okay if it's not money because wouldn't the world have us believe that it's about money that if you can pour money into education then you're going to have successful students you're going to have successful schools but that is not um what what we're finding is it so this is exactly what he wrote so he's talking about fenger high school which is a school in chicago correct yeah. uh so and he, he says when you talk about these schools you instantly start to think about a school that's being neglected, a school that's being ignored by the bureaucrats in Washington, right. uh, schools that are just being ignored, but not at all. Instead, over the course of the past two decades, it has been the focus of repeated, ambitious, and well-financed reforms by some of the most respected education officials and philanthropists in the country. Uh, so, And he lists a lot of these things out. So... Uh, there was a 525,000 NASA-sponsored science lab put into the school, did absolutely nothing. Two years later, uh, it, the school became a magnet school and specialized in technology. Nothing came about that. Graduation rates did not increase. Uh, uh, watching the kids over long periods of times did not increase. And then there was a $21 million grant from the Gates Foundation thrown into the school uh, and they called it a truly historic day for Chicago public schools. And then uh, th they followed these kids along the way, a longitudinal study. Nothing came about that, that from that grant, $21 million, completely wasted because they went towards the cognitive hypothesis. This right. is exactly what it is. All of this money is being thrown towards academics, academics, academics. Right. And, and what Paul Tuff did such a great job getting into was when you're throwing money into these schools in, uh, in urban areas that are, uh, that are, can, you know, that, that come from uh, less privileged students and the achievement gap, those sorts of things, Paul Tuff did a great job describing why this money is being wasted. Why are we not seeing improvements across the board and he beautifully transitions right into ACE scores and ACE right. studies. So yeah. that, that to me was, was beautiful, the way that he set that up. Yeah. So if you didn't join us last week in the introduction, he talked about, Paul Tuff, the author of this book, talked about the, the cognitive hypothesis, which is yep. what we're seeing in this country um, is that 
uh, earlier is better, right? Make kids smarter, faster. Baby Einstein, brainy baby uh, educational DVDs, your baby can read program. That all stems from this cognitive hypothesis that says you better raise the smartest, most talented kid on the block if you want your kid to be successful as an adult. Exactly. But what we're finding is we focus on academics in the two-year-old classrooms at daycare, right? We have this two-year grade inflation, if you will, doing the second grade curriculum in kindergarten. And, and yet our test scores aren't improving in this country. Gradu- you know, we, we don't see that, that education-wise that we are, we are making that much of an impact. So if it's not the cognitive hypothesis, if starting earlier with academics isn't the answer, then how do children succeed? What is the, um, the, the magic formula, if you will, because we are finding that, that it's not pouring money into academic programs. Um, and so uh, this was an interesting chapter. And what he really started to talk about was stress. And it just was yes. so fascinating to me when they were looking at why in this school district where, um, you know, the poverty rate is extremely high, there's this huge achievement gap, um, why, you know, no matter how much many millions of dollars we pour into this school in, in, in South Chicago, why aren't, why isn't it making a difference? Well, they started to look more at um, what was going on outside of school, right? Yes. And really looking at, at stress, if you will. And on page 12, it said stress is the key channel through which early adversity causes damage to developing brains and bodies. And so it's really, it, you know, and it got kind of technical, you know, where they started talking yeah. about some of the, the stress hormones, you know, cortisol and um, the HPA axis. I mean, mm-hmm. I was just sort of like overwhelmed. I was like, this is intense stuff. Um, but I, I, I found it so fascinating that they talk about stress comes from mental processes. That was one of the things he talked about and worrying um, is worrying about, about things. And so I think about what we've done in, in our educational system. We now have kindergartners that are so stressed out because they're being expected to read and write. So even though this chapter was a lot about the achievement gap, what I took from it, Michael, and maybe, maybe I went a little far in this, in this kind of analysis, but I'm looking at stress in general and, and, and because this book was written over 10 years ago, you know? And so I look at, at where we're at now and our expectations for, um, early child education and the stress you know uh, I had an occupational therapist in one of my seminars a few years ago and she said I just have to tell you I have a kindergartner at home and she came home from school and she was crying and upset and you know I assumed someone was mean to her or you know what I mean my my five-year-old daughter is upset and crying and when I finally got her calmed down enough you know I asked her what was wrong and she said mommy can you please just get me a tutor Mm. school is so hard I just need a tutor and how how old is this girl Five. She's a Five years old asking so, for a tutor. Asking for a tutor. And I'm like, wow. well, how did she even know a tutor was a thing? Somebody's been telling her. Somebody else in her class is obviously already getting a tutor. But the fact that she's already feeling dumb. We have five-year-olds saying things like, I hate school. You should never, ever hate school in elementary school. So what's going on? So I looked at, do you think I took it too far in interpreting, you know, this idea of stress and these, this increase in cortisol levels, um, you know, to be saying, I think this is what's happening in our education system with this grade inflation, if you will. This is exactly what it is. So last week we talked about the introduction, which was the intro to the cognitive hypothesis. Right. And the biggest thing we took away from that was when Paul Tuff describes that his son 
he's just he bases a lot of things around his son sometimes sure. was born into a particularly anxious moment in the history of american parenting and education yeah. so that's exactly what it is the cognitive hypothesis starting at the most crucial time in a, in any human being's life right. is that preschool kindergarten uh, you know uh -huh. all those age 5 and below the, the most right. crucial time for all human life and that time is now because of the cognitive hypothesis and because of this world that we've created about achievement and great inflation like you talk about right. it's making parents anxious yeah. and that ang that anxiety is trickling down into the students it is yeah. as simple as that yeah. and and then in this next chapter in chapter one we're, we're seeing that this stress continues after kindergarten this right. stress continues <laughs> the cognitive hypothesis in in yeah. elementary middle and high school and he, he got very scientific about it, just like you said, describing exactly what's happening. And it's worse for people that are living in low-income areas because they don't have the relationships. And he, right. he, goes, he goes deep into the relationships. Yep. And it's harder for them to feel safe. You know, uh, right. you know like I, I took for granted, you know, go, being able to go to school and come home and do my homework in a quiet, clean, right. safe space. Right. And not everybody has that. No. And a lot of people always take the, um, the idea of, okay, if you're growing up in a low-income neighborhood, if you're in a bad school, if you, uh, you know, if you have parents that don't have it all together, you can just work really, really hard. You can right. just work super hard and you, yeah. can wor and you can work yourself out of it. It's, you know, anyone can do it. You know, pro athletes have done it. You can just work really hard. But Paul Tuff did an amazing job here describing no it's not about it's not. it's not about hard work it is about the environment it is about right. the environment so it's about what school does everything that's right so it's it, it's it's more than do you have grit do you have resiliency yes. there is because they take it down to the cellular level you know talking about um of what uh, the chemical reactions on page 26 he actually goes into the chemical reactions that come from extreme stress mm -hmm. one of the things that i i had because i i'm rereading this book you know this is a book that i had read before yep. so we fully yep. decided it and i don't know if you can read this was a note that i had in my um off to the side but it says maslow's hierarchy yep. and i think that um it is so important that we we acknowledge that if basic needs aren't being met, you know, uh, then it's going to be really hard to, to worry about the cognitive or the academic side of things. And so this is, I have that written on page 38, um, you know, you, it, because this is what was interesting, Michael, he starts talking about having secure attachments. And so when yeah. we started talking about attachments and, and I know we've got some time and we're going to go through this, but I, I got to tell you, my mind was totally blown because he starts by talking about, um, you know, uh, it's about uh, relationships, right? And it's about being uh, attunement. He used that word attunement. And I, I love that term because as an early intervention provider, I'll, when I talk to parents, I'll say, have you ever heard the term somebody say, oh, you're so in tune with your child. You're so mm -hmm. in tune. Well, that comes from the, 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 the scientific term attunement. And um, it was just fascinating to me that he took this um, to relationships and executive functions. And there you, know, you go. actually has, um, uh, it starts page 16 is where he starts talking about the executive functions. And here's what blew my mind, okay? He talks about on page 17, the part of the brain most affected by early stress. Okay, so we're talking about stress now. Whether it's 
because you live in a chaotic, violent environment or yep. because you're being force-fed academics before it's developmentally appropriate. So there you go. talking about early stress, okay? So the part of the brain most affected by early stress is the prefrontal cortex. Ah, there you go. What, guess what develops in the prefrontal cortex, right? There you have it. There you so have it. So here comes the executive function. So I just have to link. So this is the book that we're reading. But I immediately, when he started talking about prefrontal cortex, have you read The Whole oh, Child by Dr. Siegel? Amazing book. Amazing so book. So I got to tell you what I actually have. I'm, this is what a nerd I am. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, the brain, the hand brain. It's a glove. But I just have to show you because this is the thing that blows my mind. So here you have the frontal brain, right? Oh, wow. So this is where all the executive functions are. This is your thought, you know, being able to plan and being able to have working memory and, you know, those higher level things when you're in control of your emotions. But guess what happens when you um, lose control? They literally use this to show that you flip your lid. And what do we mean when we say you flip your lid? Well, your he calls this your upstairs brain. Your upstairs brain no longer is in control. So your wow. ability to plan and to think and to problem solve, that's gone when you flip your lid. So guess what? Now you're thinking with your downstairs brain. That's what Dr. Siegel calls that, your downstairs brain. So now it's your limbic region, right? And now that's, you know, the strong emotion and that's your brainstem. So now you're just in fight or flight mode, right? So this is when um, uh, the behaviors get out of control. So I love this visual. I really would like to do this book sometime. I know a yeah, lot let's of people do it. already yeah. read it. Let's but do it. I just really feel like it just amazes me how when we're reading Paul Tuff's book and it leads into this idea of the prefrontal cortex and I, I know, and then I'll shut up and let you talk, but this is one of the coolest <laughs> things um, that he said. And I was like, this is, Oh, on page 21, he said in our teenagers, in our adolescents, and that's kind of the age yes. that, you, yes. that you really focus on. He said, there's uh -huh. two systems that develop. There's the incentive processing system. And there's the cognitive control system, right? So the incentive processing system, um, it reaches its full power in adolescence. This is the, I do this because it makes me feel good. I do this because, right, I get something from it. But the cognitive control system is where inhibition is, right? Where you're able Absolutely. to say, well, that's not in my best interest. Or I need to delay gratification and do X, Y, or Z instead. The problem is that doesn't fully develop until your mid-20s. Exactly. Exactly. Ugh. It's fascinating. So much good stuff. So, so the, the brain grows from back to front. So it's the front of the brain, which is the home of executive functioning, that is truly developing during the school age years. Mm -hmm. It's developing in pre-K, kindergarten, elementary, middle, and high school. And it's not academics that's making it stronger. Yes, right. language makes it stronger. It is relationships and experiences. I, that is the number one thing that I am always explaining to my parents. I talked about right. it last week. It is relationships and experiences. You have an individual with weak executive functioning. What are they going to do? They're going to minimize their experiment, their, their, uh, their experiences, and mm -hmm. they are going to minimize their relationships. Right. They're going, they're going to have nothing but online video Thank game you. relationships. Thank and they're going to, and they're going to have nothing but video game relationships. Right. They're going to so be they're, that what we're dealing with now in the digital age. A hundred percent you are doing what you're doing out on the East coast is helping right. Adolescents yeah. be able to, I mean, it, 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 
executive functions, it, it, everything. I mean, as an early intervention provider, all I talk about is relationship-based learning. That's, that's all it is. Oh, I'm so worried my two-year-old doesn't know his shapes or he doesn't know his letters. And I say, oh, no, no, that's, or, you know, I have this autistic student that I'm working with and I'm worried because he can't read or whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 we're going to go back to relationship-based learning. And what we're going to do is really focus on attunement. And I actually Googled, um, I wanted a really good definition of attunement. And this is the one I like the best. Attunement is our ability to be aware of and respond to a child's needs. Okay. There you go. A person who is well attuned will respond with appropriate language and behaviors based on another person's emotional state. So kind of last week, I think we talked about this ebb and flow. Like, you know, I love, I want to put as a therapist, I push kids, push kids because I want them to, I want to challenge them. I want them to learn new skills, but I have to be sensitive enough. I have to be attuned right to their emotional state to be able to back off then when I sense that I'm overloading them. And so mm. I think that, um, when mm. we start talking about relationship-based learning, whether it's with a teacher and a student, whether it's with a parent and a child, a daycare provider and a child, a speech-language pathologist and a, and a client, whatever it is, this beautiful ebb and flow is all about, I've always called it being sensitive, but I now understand it's about attunement. Attun wow. Isn't that wow. great? That was beautiful. That was, that was perfectly said. That was really, really good. I'm, I'm, I'm writing that down too. <laughs> that was, that, that was really that the whole ebb and flow. That's really fascinating. It that's, is. That, that was... This is what I always say. Like I used to have a lot of grad students back when I had my clinic. And so I, I always found it hard to explain. And I wish I would have had ebb and flow as part of my lingo back then, because oh, it's man. something that has always come very natural to me. Push, 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 pull back and repair the relationship. And once the relationship is repaired, now we're going to push forward and build new skills. Oh crap. I pushed too far. I pull back and repair the relationship. So one of the mm. things I always talk about as a therapist is I'm always doing one of two things in a therapy session. Always. I'm either teaching new skills or I'm uh -huh. building the relationship. I'm building a relationship or building new skills. It's one or the ooh, other, but ooh. it is that back and forth. We can call it the dance. We can call it reciprocity. We can call it ebb and flow. We can call it whatever we want, right? I mean, there's a million different names for it, but it's about um, attunement is about harmony, right? It is about homeostasis in the body. So what's the opposite of attunement then? What's the opposite of harmony? Discord. Discord. Yeah, there you go. Dysfunction. You know? so, I don't know. I just feel like, Michael, we need to, and you and I believe so strongly in this, which is why we're doing the book club, but we have to start having conversations with parents and teachers about this yeah. stuff, about yeah. attainment, about executive functions, and stop talking about grades and test scores and the stuff mm. that has been shown over and over again in the research to not determine how children succeed, right? We're yes. trying to figure out, this is the question we're asking, how do children succeed? So we're talking about attunement right now in terms of like a lot of the way you described it was clinician student, like mm -hmm. using, using the ebb and flow to build the relationship and then, and, and then gain new skills when necessary. Mm -hmm. But I think this chapter did a great job describing attunement as a whole. So, uh -huh. attu so attunement really uh, that whole ebb and flow is really, you know, we talk about people that are growing up in low socioeconomic environments mm -hmm. and they have the whole ebb and flow between heavy academic with the cognitive theory and then uh, the cognitive hypothesis and all that they're dealing with at home and all of the stress and all stress. the anxiety and the cortisol levels and the lack of relationships yes. and the lack of positive experiences. So there's constant ebb and flow there where it's just becoming a, a, a massive overload. And this is where, where the ACE scores come into play with the, the adverse childhood experiences. 
And when he's talking about that, he's talking about how uh, and all of the, the studies they did on the ACE scores and how they correlated to uh, poor outcomes in adulthood, it was basically like 100%. If you mm-hmm. had high, if you had high A scores, you were going to have a lot of difficulty there. And, and A that, scores are the the stress, right? How yes. many stressful events did you have in your life? And I adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, yep. you had more than four adverse childhood experiences. Wasn't it four? I think they found that if you had more than that, yeah, um, that your 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 um, outcomes. That was the word they used. Your outcomes as an adult were not very favorable. And some of those kids had a score of seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Right. Meaning how many times, because if you look at any one of us, I mean, we don't need to get into our personal life, but you can look at any one of us. And a lot of us had one or maybe two, you know, mm-hmm. like um, a traumatic, you know, adverse childhood um, uh, events, if you will. But when you're talking six, seven, eight of those, it, you know, the, the stress levels were too high for these developing brains and bodies to deal with. And you look at these ACE tests. A lot of these questions have to do with feeling safe, yep. relationships, uh, and all of the different varied experiences that you have. So yep. that right there is a uh, is not attunement. It's that dysfunction. It's that right. discord. discord. There's not a positive ebb and flow because all of us, you know, like like Kerry's talking about all of us where we're talking about, okay, we may have one ACE score, mm-hmm. one thing. Mm-hmm. And all of us know, we've all been through education. There were those days where we just couldn't give it our all on that test. Right. We just couldn't give it our all on that, on that, on that project. Something was going on at home. Yep. We just weren't feeling it. Everybody has days where they're down, where they're depressed, where they're just not feeling it. When you have these high cortisol levels and you have lack of experiences, lack of relationships, you are not going to develop your frontal lobe of your brain during right. those critical years, during those, those experiences. Uh, and, and really, overall, having this attunement, this ebb and flow between, yes, academics are important, we're going to teach academics, right. but we have to have a critical focus on relationships. And us as speech-language pathologists, we have a unique experience where we have an ability to build a relationship while working on speech and language skills. And teachers have less of an opportunity to do that because they have immense pressure from superintendents, from principals, from the curriculum to push, a, push the common core, push the curriculum, push academics, push test scores, push standardized scores. Uh, and th- there is no opportunity to really work with each individual student in a relationship-based environment. Uh, so the way that American education is set up now, it is not attunement, it is discord, because there is no ebb and flow, like there can be one-on-one with an SLP and a student. There is massive discord between all uh, all teachers and all students, the way that we're focusing so heavily on this cognitive right. model and nothing is relationship-based, nothing is, is, ex- is experience-based. And, and guess what, Michael? What, what happens then is the, the students end up being classified as having behavior problems, right? Oh, so exactly. behavioral, exactly. which means that they're intentionally you know, doing these things that they're in control. And when we look at the, the glove, by the way, somebody asked me for the, the link. I don't, I don't have the link right here. I just gave you the website. I got this off tessie.com, but it's just called the <laughs> handy brain model. But you know, once you've flipped your lid, you're no longer in control. And I think the more we understand brain development and understand um, 
uh, uh, reactions and attunement and relationships and uh, really seek to understand. Remember, all behavior is communication, right? Yeah. How many times as an SLP do we say that? Uh, all behavior is communication. So what we need to really focus on, and I think our education system would do well to try to figure out what is the behavior about? Well, you know, what is the, the, the behavior? Oh, it's on Amazon too. Good. Um, what is the behavior um, trying to, to tell us? I just have to tell you on page 33 of our book, there was something really interesting. And I, I just want to read you this, um, this, this little paragraph because somebody on, maybe it was on Instagram, on my social, I don't know. I mean, on my, on my page, somebody said something about spoiling a baby and I can't think in what context it was. And somebody else replied, you can't spoil a baby. And so I don't know. I found it fascinating that on page 33, it says this, it says um, in, okay. So there were these studies done in the early sixties and seventies, and they found the effect of early nurturing was exactly the opposite of what the behaviorists expected. Babies whose parents responded readily and fully to their cries in the first months of life, so basically they were responsive, were at one year of age more independent than babies whose parents had ignored their cries. In mm. preschool, the pattern continued. The children whose parents had responded most sensitively to their emotional needs as infants were the most self-reliant. Wow. More sensitive parental care created a secure base from which the child could explore the world. Um, and so I just, I just, I, there's something really powerful going on here. And it's so crazy to me that we can talk about, you know, education um, in, in high school, you know, in middle school and high school, and yet link it all the way back to infancy, you know, everything and goes back to infancy. It does. Everything. And, and, everything. and it's about the brain and the development of, of, of those relationships and trying to create regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of, um, you know, uh, living conditions. What we want to do is reduce chaos. We want to focus on relationships. I mean, uh, some, page 38, improving children's outcomes by promoting stronger relationships between parents and children appears to be the most effective way to affect long-term outcomes. There I mean, you go. Is that not just, so that's why as an early interventionist, I got to tell you, I'm like, a little bit freaking out here going, yes, this is why in the birth of yes. the world, we focus on the family. It is a family-centered program. So you have a child who is struggling in their development. We don't go in and do the medical model and do direct therapy with the one-year-old or the two. There you go. Instead, what we do, and we go in and we, we figure out as a family, what are your goals for your child? You know, what are, and we focus on relationships. And one of the things I love to do with every new family is talk to them about um, being a responsive caregiver. And it yes. just, I love this because I feel like that's exactly what this chapter was about. It's about being present in the moment, about not being digitally distracted, putting your phone down when your child is trying to get your attention, right? About not trying to force feed them academics, you know, and make them learn their letters, numbers, shapes, and colors. It's about getting down on the floor and engaging them through play and going for a walk and not worrying about taking pictures of them you know exactly it's about yes. connection and i'm yep. just so yep so this is what i think gives us hope michael because i know you and i <laughs> talk a lot when we're not uh, uh doing our live here but one of the things that um is so exciting for us is is that here let me there's a quote improving executive function this is from page 18 seems like a promising vehicle for narrowing the achievement gap. And there so we go. what I love about it is you can't change IQs. You know what I mean? After yep. age eight, yeah. and we yeah. have some statement in here about after age eight, it's pretty yep. hard to affect IQ. IQ is IQs. stagnant, yeah. Okay, 
but what can change and they've shown time and time again i mean he's got this is an evidence-based book he's got the research in here um that what can change is we can improve the child's executive functions and we do yeah. that by focusing on parent-child relationships by focusing on teacher focusing on teacher-student relationships and so this is exciting for you and i who are trying to affect education right absolutely and and it says if we just start looking at executive functions if we start looking at attunement if we start using the correct terminology there we go and start focusing on the right things there is some promising uh there's a promising outlook i think for future students exactly so that there, there you go the promising outlook and that's exactly why you and i get so passionate about this topic is because you have a system that is so obviously broken but the the results and the the way to get rid of the brokenness and to fix it is literally right there and we were talking about it before we, we came on live uh the solution to the problem is not about throwing money into schools. Uh-uh. It's not a, it's, it's not, this is not a expensive solution. In yeah. fact, improving schools actually can be really, really cheap. It really, can. really cheap. You don't need to spend all these monies on smart boards and new textbooks uh. and these sorts of things. We have got to start focusing on executive functions. And in, in this chapter, he finally started to use the term, the term. executive functions. Yep. So in the, in the introduction, he sort of kept it to character. He kept uh-huh. it to skills, these sorts of things. And now we're finally talking about executive functions. I love I so how- I excited yep. when I saw that term, Michael. I was oh, like, yeah. oh, there yep. it is. There's, there yeah, you go. So, right? so we're talking yeah. about it. Chapter one, it's there. And yep. I, love, I love how he mentioned the Harvard Center of the Developing Child. Uh-huh. That is an unbelievable resource. I love using their information. Yep. When I did, when I created the uh, the I Grow Now model of executive functioning, uh, I based it off a lot of their research. They're doing unbelievable research on toxic stress, resiliency, and relationships. So yep. the solution to this broken problem in education is focusing on executive functioning. Period. And yep. it's it's not just oh, if we focus on executive functioning you know, we can still work on uh, the cognitive hypothesis. Right, right. No, it's no, it's not about that. It's about, it's about, we know that strong executive functions allow a child to succeed long-term period. Like, like Carrie just said, IQ is stagnant. It does not get stronger on and on and on. IQ is really hereditary. It's right. something that you in, in, inherit and you have your IQ, whatever. But if we focus on strengthening executive functions, like the, uh, the tools of the mind from the introduction mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. focused on self-talk and internal right. speech, yep. you know, how come in kindergarten, first grade, preschool, kids are not taught about the brain coach? They're not right. taught about the ability to speak to themselves. Yep. How come they're not talking about mental movies? How come right. they're, they're not doing kids yoga? How come they're not doing like five feet, like three field trips a week? Right. They should be, exactly. they should, they should be going out and exp- exploring their experiences. community experiences, experiences. going out hundred yes. percent. There should be multiple yes. recesses a day. That's there should right. be, there should like, that's, this is what it's all about. Right. And right. everything, everything I just said was not an expensive option. You can take the uh-huh. kids to a free local park. Right. You can take them on, on any sort of tour of, of the, right. the local community. Right. It, it's all about making sure that they are having experiences and they and, are having relationships and they are strengthening. And, and this is on, on right. page 20, on page 21 here, Paul Tuff says, the reason researchers are so excited 
is because of executive functions. Executive functions that uh, researchers and scientists who study child development are excited about fixing this broken education system because of what we now know about executive functions. Yep. Because they are not only highly predictive of success, they are highly predictive of success right there, how yep. children succeed, yep. executive functions, highly predictive of success. They're also quite malleable. Look, they I have are, it highlighted in a There way. you go. They are, they are malleable. So basically, when we talk about the brain being plastic, when we're uh -huh. talking about neuroplasticity, right. we're talking about that prefrontal cortex. So they're malleable much more than any other cognitive, cognitive skill. The prefrontal cortex is more responsive to intervention than other parts of the brain. And how many, how, there, how many times in, in speech pathology, I can't even tell you, like you have like the informed SLP with Meredith, Meredith Poole Harold, who's amazing. And it's all about getting the research out there. Right. And how many times is it where, oh, do we, is this something that can really be, be fixed in right. therapy? Can I really work on R past a certain age? Uh -huh. can, I, can I really uh, improve someone after a TBI? Can I really like, is this right. something like, I feel like I'm, I'm not making any improvements in therapy. The research shows that uh, the prefrontal cortex and executive functioning uh, is responsive to intervention period. Yep. And, and he describes here, uh, it stays flexible well into adolescence and early adulthood. So if we can improve a child's environment yep. in specific ways that lead to better executive functioning, we can increase their prospects for success in a particularly efficient way. So right there, so, so one thing I want to add, once again, let's, let's mention that this book is a little old now. Right. It's, not, it's not completely up to date. So he's saying if we improve a child's environment, yes, yes, that's crucial, yes. But we should also, he also did not mention in that sentence that if we provide intervention and therapy right. focused on executive, executive function, function, if there's a goal for self-talk, if there's a goal for visual imagery, if there's a goal for self-regulation, self-motivation, self-evaluation, that along with environmental modification can right. make a world of, difference, world of difference more than any A plus or 100 or, or top percentile rank on any standardized score. Right. If we teach a child to talk to themselves, to visualize themselves, to have right. resiliency, to self-regulate, that, that is going to bring that student to success more than any test ever will. That's right. When I when I think about executive functions, you know, I just kind of jotted this down. Like we have to, we, working memory, we know is absolutely right. One of the most essential things: working memory, flexible thinking, self control. Right? Those things are so important for success later later in life. And how many how many people have you known in your life who are like brilliant in high school? You know, got got like really high ACT or SAT scores and then flunked out of college, right? Oh, uh, these are the, these are the students that, these are the students I work with. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. exactly. So it, this yeah. is why we have to stop already with the cognitive hypothesis, okay? It's not how smart you are. And that's why when parents, you know, so I work with the young ones, they say, oh, but he's so smart. I mean, I know he's not talking, but he's so smart. But smartness isn't what this is about. If we could stop focusing on making kids smarter faster, which is what the the baby educating industry is, right? Baby Einstein, DB. There you go. It's all, it's make your baby smarter faster. We have to stop placing this this um this value on smartness on intelligence on iq and start looking at working memory flexible thinking self-control start looking at executive 
functions, right? Exactly. Look at that in young children. I'm telling you right now, play is a reflection of development. I mean, 100%. Absolutely a reflection of development. So when I see children who have no play skills, okay, they also tend to, uh, they're often, um, they, they, they're impulsive, right? Yeah. They, yeah. They hit and they bite and they run yep. and they jump. So we are just going to, I don't know. I just feel like we have to um, get, get to executive function. Somebody asked the name of the book. This is the book we're doing for our first book study. Um, Michael, I have to ask you this. You saw me grab another book off my shelf. This one might be a little, a little um, much to do as a book study, but I, have you ever read Free to Learn? I have not. It's by Peter Gray. It, it, it literally knocked my socks off. It rocked my world because this is a very, very... <sighs> I'm going to write um, that one down. It, you need to. And I would love for you to let me know your thoughts because if you get it and then we can decide if we really want to do it as a book study or not. Mm-hmm. But Let's do it third. Let's do it third. The instinct to play will make our children happier, more self-reliant, and better students for life. I mean, you're going to love it, mm. but it's basically saying our educational system is is failing too many of our kids, you know? And so when you're free to learn, you it's all about child-directed. It's about letting kids um, direct their own learning. We don't give kids nearly enough of that we think they need to be entertained or instructed every waking second of the day. So you've got kids of all ages from toddler through adolescent who can't ride from here to there in a car without watching um, a, a show, without watching TikToks, without being on mm. YouTube or watching a video. Like you, we, we are going to have to reinstill um, the ability to be still. Do you know yes. what I mean? Like you yes. need to be still. You need to yes. be able to sit and wait in line without being entertained or instructed. Without, you know, you need to be able to sit in the back seat of your car without being entertained or instructed. You need to be able to sit through church or through some um, assembly or through some, you need to wait in line at the DMV. I don't know, but we shouldn't need to entertain or um, instruct a child every waking second of the day. But you walk through any Walmart, through any Target, through any grocery store, and what are you going to see? Every young kid or teenagers, I mean, they're yep. like this. They yep. can't even right be there. in the grocery store. Nope. So uh, w- we shouldn't be surprised that we're seeing more and more kids with issues with executive function because we're raising them to not have those skills because yep. we're hyper-focusing on letters, numbers, shapes, and colors because everybody wants their kid to be smart. Yep. But we've got all the research that shows the cognitive hypothesis doesn't hold water for successful outcomes as adults. So- what are we going to do about it? Okay. So I just looked. This book was written in 2012. Uh-huh. So since, so basically a decade ago, uh-huh. this, book was, this book was written. And guess what? Over that past decade, technology has made things worse for kids. Worse it, has made, it has made it more difficult for kids to succeed. Yeah. So when this book was written, he challenged the cognitive hypothesis versus executive functioning. And clearly executive functioning won that battle hands down. But now executive functioning, it's basically cognitive hypothesis plus screens versus executive functions. And this is the world that we're in today. And And they don't play nice. Screen time, excessive screen time does not play nice with building executive functions. Oh, it's the opposite. Yeah, so this is why we're, again, we're going to have to make a plan of how we're gonna live in the digital age and still um, help children acquire the executive functions that are necessary to be successful as adults. 
So there you go. There is work to be done and it's massive and um, getting a better curriculum or doing more testing or teaching to the test, which is what we love to do in education now mm. um, to somehow raise our test scores. Let's be clear that none of that is going to help you succeed as an adult, whether it's go to college, get a job, you know, be successful in your marriage or in your career. Um, you must have executive functions. And so when we look at what makes a child successful, there really is, um, you know, I think we've, you know, this chapter did a great job of saying there's two things. It's about strong relationships and strong executive function skills. And exactly. we're going to have to start creating um, an education system around those concepts. Yep. So, so this chapter did a great job describing how stress uh, inhibits executive function and stops exec the prefrontal cortex from growing and allowing the child to feel safe and feel good, positive in their relationships. Mm -hmm. And the cognitive hypothesis was creating an environment of stress. It was creating an environment of stress, uh, cortisol, everything, anxiety, mental illness, all of these things the cognitive hypothesis was creating. Now here we are in, tw in 2021, we have the cognitive hypothesis and we have screen addiction in just about 99% of adolescents. And we have iPads in kindergarten classrooms. We have iPads in pre-K and we are losing play. And we have, got, and we have gone from uh, a, a parenting style where kids need to be overscheduled, where kids need, uh, need uh, they, they, they can't go out and play. They're not, the kids don't play outdoors anymore. Kids don't go ride their bikes. And this is what it is, relationships and experiences. Relationships now, I can't tell you. Basically, every child I work with in my private practice has maybe one or two in-person friends, and the rest of their friends are kids online. online. Mm -hmm. They've never even met in real life. Right. They have no, no idea who they are. They have no idea what their age are. They have no idea what they look like, and they are not getting anything out of those relationships, right. but they have those relationships because their parents let them play video games whenever they want. There are no structure around video games, and there right. has to be screen time structure. So the, the cognitive hypothesis being part of American education, this is at the political level. This is right. at the at, at the law-based level. This is something that Carrie and I are, are going to fight until here's why we can't way. stand. Because it's easy to measure. Do you understand yeah. why yeah. people yeah. want the cognitive hypothesis to work? Because it's easy to say if you get 90% or you got 8 out of 10 or you can label, you know, 10 of these letters, numbers, shapes, colors, do your arithmetic, whatever it is, because those things are easy to measure. So we have to find a way to measure executive functions. We have to find a way to measure play skills. We have to find, you know, we have, that's what we're going to have to have because the government and everybody in charge of doling out the money, they want to see proof that what you're exactly. doing. Exactly. Right. Well, so. well, 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 guess what? Guess what else is easy to measure? How many people are dropping out of college? That's right. Su suicide rates. Yep. Uh, yep. People, uh, people that are 30 years old living with their parents. Yep. Uh, yep. People that are making minimum wage. 1% of the American population owning 99% of the wealth right. and there being, there being a massive income gap. Yep. Uh, all sure. of these issues. Those are easy all, to measure. Exactly. exactly. And, and this is what's happening. If we focus on executive functioning and we bring back play mm -hmm. to the early childhood years and we stop with the letters, stop with the numbers, they're going to learn it, period. They're going and to learn start it. start teaching screen and time mindfulness. Screen time mindfulness, all of these things. Yes. Yes, and 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 th and another thing we talked about how much money they're throwing at schools for NASA science labs and right. reformation and smart boards and all these things. What we're proposing, 
not only works based on the research, but also it's going to save a ton of money for schools. Schools yep. aren't going to need a, as much so money. So we can pay teachers more. But we're also, yes, pay teachers more. That's, that's something I'm also very passionate about. But moving forward, think of all the money we're going to save in terms of mental institutions, right. drug addictions, uh, all of these different things, because we have created people that know how to say no to right. bad experiences, that right. don't have strict black or white thinking, people right. that can put their phone down flexible and sit and thinking. flexible thinking and, and use that. It's the prefrontal cortex that allows you to say no to drugs, that allows you to right. say no to bad experiences. It's yep. your positive relationships and your, and your multiple experiences that allow you to live long and prosper and have a, and have a successful life. Okay, so you just said it again. I wrote down something you said earlier, and I had this aha moment. You said, we have to give kids more experiences, and you just said it again, right? Experience. There you go. So here's something I think we need to start. I'm going to start uh, you know, incorporating into, like, when I do an evaluation or when I'm talking to a family, is I want families to start documenting how many experiences their child had that week. That's what I said because last week. Yeah. Going to the store is an experience. Going yep. for a walk, but not in the stroller, like literally going for a walk or getting the mail is an experience. Talking to the neighbor is an experience. Yep. But we don't get to count sitting in front of your screen playing on your nope. iPad. That's not an experience. What I want to know is how many relationship-based experiences or how many novel experiences, right? Because the way you become flexible is you have novel experiences, right? You have to try yep. new things because then you learn and you expand your horizons and all of that. So I think what we should really start encouraging parents to do is to really keep track of how many experiences they provided their child non-screen experiences they provided their child during the week and wouldn't that be fabulous oh yeah that 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 is on my intake form is so my so, so my intake form for grown out therapy when i'm getting an executive function student someone who has concerns for executive functioning parents will will list how many experiences they'll describe. How many different experiences does your child have per day? Okay. And, and if a parent returns an intake form and says he goes to school, he eats, he sleeps, he games. And I get that quite often. Right. That's when you know you have a lot of problems. Yep. So that's, that is a lack of experiences. And sometimes it's 18, 19, 20-year-olds that, right. parent, like, that parents are saying that their kid only does four things a day. And eat, let's be honest, sleep. Michael, after a certain age, shouldn't we be asking the student themselves, you know, ask yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. So, buddy, how many experiences did you have today? You know, it's five o'clock. You're here at speech therapy with me. How many experiences did you have today? Well, I went to school. I went home. I gamed. And then I came yep. here. All right. That's exactly. not enough. How many experiences should one have in a day? I wonder if there's yep. research on this. Do you think there is, Michael? Like how many experiences for good, strong executive functions? Or I mean, I wonder if we need to really look into this. Like, that's something, yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's a lot of what, what we did on our study. I'll, I'll send you the research that we did for, yeah. for, for the I Grow Now. So we worked at a private school with uh, special needs students here in the Philadelphia area for an entire year, from the beginning okay. to end. We did all the baseline testing, and then we instituted the model throughout the school year and then, okay. then, did, and then did final testing. So throughout the school year, we really focused on doing tons of social groups, like more hangout groups. I don't call uh -huh. them social groups, hangout groups. Uh -huh. we, we taught them uh, about the brain coach. We taught them inner speech. We taught them about mental movies. So we did the actual executive function training. Wow. But we also, you know, a lot of these kids at recess would sit by themselves right. and, be, and be on their phone and not yep. do these things. Yep. So this, the group of students that we worked with, we had a strict no phone during recess policy. Yep. And we would go out and we would take the kids that hated sports, hated movement, hated exercise, 
and we were playing basketball with them. We were playing kickball with them. We were playing football with them. We got them up and we got them moving. We got them feeling really, really good about themselves. And guess what movement and does? It there you go. Right? Everything. Vitamin Everything. from the sun, movement. Yep. It gets you It gets you going and you do, you feel better. The longer more you sit in front of your screen, you just get more and more sucked in and you get lower and lower, flatter affects, not as responsive. So I love that so much. So that's exactly what it was. So we did the actual therapy, like Paul Tuff talks about, how the prefrontal cortex is responsive to therapy. So we did the intervention, but aside from the intervention, there was a strict focus on relationships and experiences. And, and if you look here, and if you look here on page uh, 28, uh -huh. uh, Paul Tuff talks about there is some positive news in the research. It turns out that there is a particularly effective antidote to the ill effects of early stress. Yep. And what he talks about here is parents and other caregivers who are able to form close, nurturing relationships with children foster resilience. Yep. Resil resilience is an executive function skill. Yep. It requires mental flexibility. It requires time management. It requires organization. It requires all of these different things. And it requires verbal and nonverbal working memory if you're going to be resilient. So res all parents want their kids to be resilient, period. Right. Every, every parent wants their kid to be resilient instead of a straight A student, period. You may, not, right. you, you may need some time to think about it for a second, but yes, you want your kid to be resilient. And another thing that, you know, this book is 10 years old now, and this book focuses on the research that uh, about parenting relationships. Mm -hmm. And parenting relationships are crucial, crucial in early childhood. All the research backs it up. It's 100%. But what we now also know, and he kind of hints at it here by saying other caregivers, but we also know that teachers, speech and language pathologists, OTs, PTs, mentors, guidance counselors, you can be that person. Yep. You can focus on rapport, 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 right. relationships, and you can be that person to develop resilience, executive functions, and all of those skills in this student. If they're not able to get it at home, you right. can be that person. And of course, I'm biased. I'm an SLP. Who's better at building rapport than a speech and language pathologist? Exactly. Nobody, period. We have the opportunity to work on executive functions, to be that person who fosters resilience, who fosters yep. strengthening that, that, that frontal lobe. And we have the ability to take a student who's stuck in their phone, stuck on video games, nothing but electronic relationships. We have the ability to give them the confidence and the skills they need to succeed in conversations and experiences with peers. That's so right. that is the number one thing. We want him to just look back at all all these times he studied, 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 or are you going to want him to say, I'm graduating with 10 friends, 15 friends. Right. I have all these experiences. I've traveled with my friends. I sure. did all these things. Going That's what it's all about. Trip, going to prom, yep. you know, some of that stuff, you know, doing those things, being in scouts, whatever it is, you know, for the students who don't want to do anything, who just want to hang out at home, they're not getting those experiences, right? So we yep. need to foster. And if you don't want to do them at school, then they can be outside of school. But I'm telling you, human beings need experiences. And I think we learn more than anything during the pandemic. Being yes. in lockdown for yes. essentially a year. Someone just said that. In lockdown. Don't we all, 
appreciate how important experiences and relationships are. So I feel like if anything can help us talk to parents and educators and school boards about the importance of relationships and experiences, it's living through a pandemic, which we all just did. We just there you we go. all just experienced it. There you so, go. Um, I, I don't know. I think we, we, we really need to continue this conversation. Does anyone have questions for us? We, um, we, have, we have some great comments. So someone here just said, some of my students do nothing except video gaming. They don't even eat with their families. They eat in front of the screen and their parents are okay with this. So let me ask you, what are the age of, what are the ages of your students? I'll be very interested to hear how old these students are. Uh, we have someone else who said that they're going to talk to their parents about multiple experiences. So this is Good. great. You're taking well, some, you're to hear your feedback. There yes, you go. So that's know, very, you yep. us again, what your families, if they were kind of taken aback by that, mm -hmm. but it just occurred to me when Michael was talking about it, I'm like, we should be asking the question, how many yeah. experiences does your child have in a day? How there you many go. Novel experiences, you know, yep. How, yep. I mean, wow. Yeah. And, and, oh. and think, and, and think about first to fourth grade, first to fourth grade, her students are not eating dinner with their family. Yeah. They're playing video games instead. They're eating while gaming. Think about that. Think about what that's doing to that kid's brain. Think about that. That, and when they're playing, and not only does it just suck all together that's happening, but that kid is playing video games and he is like, like, it's like a, it's like someone with a gambling addiction on a slot machine. It is just constant <laughs> dopamine, 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 yep. dopamine. So by the time, and there's no chance that kid's getting quality sleep. He's uh, probably, he, th those kids are probably playing video games till 10, 11 at night. Yep. And just think about what that's doing to that kid's brain. Every single thing that he does, I guarantee you those kids sit in class all day like this. And those are the kids, those Thank are the kids, yeah. fidgeting, yeah. fidgeting, moving, all of these things. Yeah. And then when gym class comes around, recess comes around, they're probably, it's, it's sensory overload for them. Yeah. Because yeah. they're so used to sitting there and getting stimulation by doing Sensitary. this. Yeah. And, and, and that's exactly what it is. So, so yeah. them playing video games constantly, hours, 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 first to fourth grade. Yeah. Unbelievable. It, oh, it's yeah. it's, it's going to get to the point where Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo, all of these people are going to have to step up and put stronger parental controls right. on their systems because this this is this is out of parents' it, hands it at this point. It is out of control. It's out of control. Someone um, just said very few kids eat dinner as a family. I will tell you terrible, that. My, terrible. I'm 50 years old. So I grew up in a much different, my childhood looked completely different from childhood today. And I think that where I started to see the demise of the family in this country was when everybody stopped eating dinner as a family, when mm. sports and extracurricular activities started trumping family time. Because when I was a kid, all the way through high school even, I mean, if you had practice, it was certainly never during the dinner hour. I mean, no. you had practice after school, but everybody was done by 4.30 or 5 because you had to go home and be with your family. And, you know, we had games on the weekends, but certainly not during the school week. I mean, I don't remember doing that much, um, you know, because that was family time. But now that it's more important that you're, you know, you're in all your sports and all your practices and all of that, now now families are, they're, they're kind of, they don't matter anymore, right? Our, our society yeah. says family is yeah. really the least important thing. Um, and so uh, I, I don't know. I think if we could bring back the family dinner somehow, and it needs to be screen-free family dinner, right? So That's exactly um, what it is. Exactly yeah, what it is. If we so, could bring so, that back, 
it'd be an interesting study, Michael. I, I wish I wish I, I were a researcher. I think it'd be fascinating to find, you know, 50 families, 25 who um, we use as a, a, you know, control group and they get to do whatever they want, eat where they want, how they want, and then have 25 families agree to have no screen time and to eat, you know, uh, supper together uh, five nights a week. Wouldn't it be fascinating to see um, what the outcomes are for relationships and executive functions as a family? I mean, it's just... I, so myself being an SLP who specializes in executive functioning, of course, this screen time thing is something I'm constantly dealing with. And what I always tell these parents when they first come to me is I have never in my entire career now ever worked with a family that reduced screen time or completely eliminated screen time and ended up regretting it. Period. Yeah. Period. They never once ended up regretting it ever. So yes, the, the behaviors when you first institute the plan are going to be frustrating. It's going to be tough. Yeah. I, I've worked with students that have put holes in walls, that have freaked out. Some parents yes. have had to dial 911. I get it. If, if it gets to that extreme, you got to do what you got to do, but you have got to make this change now while your child is still in adolescence and that prefrontal cortex is still growing. You don't want this to persist into uh, when, that, when that IEP runs out, you're on right. your own. You're on your own and that's it. So the number, so, so the number one, so I work with these families and, you know, some parents are afraid to be the bad guy. Some right. parents, some parents are afraid of the behaviors, but I'm telling you, you have got to do it. There is absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with saying you're allowed to game an hour a day. And there's right. nothing, and there's nothing wrong with saying you're only allowed to game an hour a week. There is nothing wrong with that. If you have an Xbox in your house, you have a PlayStation in your house, a Nintendo Switch, you're allowed to say, okay, you can play this for one hour on Sunday, right. and that's it. The, right. rest of, the rest of the week, that thing is in a lockbox. Well, you're allowed, that does not make you a bad parent. No, every family needs a, a family screen time plan. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has a free family media plan that you can download so that every family, this is what the AAP is recommending pediatricians talk to parents about, is every family should have a family screen time plan. You Absolutely. Know specifically, oh, you can have 30 minutes of iPad after nap, or you can have 60 minutes of Nintendo Wii on the weekend, or, you know, yep. I don't know what your rules are, but no screens during dinner should be a major, a major rule. No screens after 7 p.m. unless they have to use something for school, but certainly no passive screen time experiences after 7 p.m. if you want your children to sleep. Somebody mentioned this book, The Tech Wise Family. This would be a great one to do a study on, Michael. Um, this is a phenomenal Oh, yeah. Book. Oh, yeah. Um, so is the plug-in drug. I mean, I have, because I have a whole course on screen time so i have just a whole shelf of of these books but the tech wise family everyday steps for putting technology into its proper place like maybe this is what we should give um parents at a baby shower when they're kids seriously do you know what i mean so, hospitals hospitals should give that to them when they have the baby yeah absolutely so um yeah we'll have to really decide what we want to do for our second book because i think technology is one of the major issues. And I also know it's um, a hot button issue. Do you know what I mean by that? Like it's- uh, Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, like I said, this book, this, this book was written in 2012 yeah. and, and, it, and it paints a dire, dire picture for kids. And, and it, really, it really highlights the achievement gap. And now here we are, fast forward 10 years later, it's even more dire yep. and it's more dire because of screens and yep. childhood has been, and, and remember in that first chapter, they talk about how the cognitive hypothesis and 
and capitalism really throws the baby Einstein stuff, baby yeah. Einstein stuff. And now it's just, okay, every kid has to have the newest iPhone. Every right, kid has right. to have the newest Xbox. It's yep. all about buying these products. Apps, ed educational apps. It's yep. preschool on TV. Yep. It's all the cognitive hypothesis. Every toy you buy, VTech toys and LeapFrog toys and Sesame Street toys, it's all about making the kids smarter. You can buy the newest Fisher-Price baby toy. Like every year at the holidays, I always look, what is Fisher-Price putting out? And it's for a baby for 6 to 12 months, and it teaches letters, numbers, shapes, and colors. It's a battery-operated thing yeah. that the baby hits. And I'm yeah. like, wait a minute. Who in their right mind, who, anybody who understands child development would make a baby toy about letters and numbers and Makes shapes? Makes no sense. The cognitive hypothesis is driving everything right now from toys to education. And yet there's no research that says, we have research that says the opposite. No, no, yeah. no. Doesn't focus help. Focus on relationships. Yeah. Focus on executive functions. You're literally stressing your child out and you are giving them more anxiety, right. period. And you stress are, is the key channel through which early adversity causes damage to developing brains and bodies. Well, there you go. There you is, go. That is the problem. Stress is the key channel. So what we need to figure out is how are we going to reduce cortisol levels? How are we going to reduce allostatic load? I love that mm -hmm. I learned this new term. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about allostatic overload. It's that cumulative burden of chronic stress, right? So we have acute stress, and all of us have to learn how to deal with acute stress, right? Oh, yep. you're in a car yep. accident. Acute stress. Oh, um, you know, your, uh, I don't know, your lawnmower broke, acute stress. But what are we doing about chronic stress, right? What yep. are we doing about kids who, are, who have chronic stress? We have to figure out how to reduce the stress, reduce the chaos, increase predictability in their routines, actually establish consistent routines like a bedtime routine, mealtime routines. How about have rules? How about have rules about screen time? Yeah. How about rules about how much time you get to watch TV. How about have rules about eating together as a family? How about yes. have rules about, you know, I mean, yes. this is why kids have parents. Okay, if kids woke up in the morning and make decisions and made decisions that benefited their development, they wouldn't need parents, right? Yep. So yep. this is the whole reason. And and parenting isn't about being your kid's friend. And parenting isn't about not making your kid cry or not making your kid upset. Okay, we do what we do because we are disciplining. Disciplining doesn't mean to punish. Disciplining means to teach. We discipline as parents. So yes. we are going to have to. I think get to parents. We have to start with parents because all the preschools, when I go to them and say, why are you so focused on academics in this two-year-old, three-year-old classroom? And they say, because parents want it. We're a for-profit preschool, right? Parents call us and say, um, I'm looking for a more academic-focused preschool, you know, or daycare for my two-year-old, my three-year-old. Unbelievable. And so the daycare providers, the child care providers, the preschool administrators are like, we have to give parents what they want. So we're just doing this in response to parents requesting increase in academics, right? So yep. we have to start figuring, I don't know how, but we have to figure out how to get to parents, right? How yep. do we educate parents? Because as professionals, we read, we take continuing education courses, we do those things. But how can we entice parents to want to learn this stuff? Exactly. So, so we talk about the cognitive hypothesis being instituted in early childhood. And the goal is to increase IQ and make kids smarter and this whole rugrat race going right. on. And all it's really doing is increasing stress, mm -hmm. allostatic load, chronic stress, and anxiety. Yep. It, is it is putting kids in a bad position. Yep. But now, 10 years later after this book is written, we, and, and the, the, the cognitive hypothesis is on curriculum and schools and those sorts of things. And parents are, and like you said, parents are also to blame. So mm -hmm. you and I doing these chapter chats 
are creating bullet points for change. Mm -hmm. We are making ourselves public here. We're passionate about this topic and we are talking about what needs to change in education. But yep. guess what? Things have changed. Things have changed since this book was written. It also, parents have a lot to do as well, period. If you're a parent right now listening and you have a student or you, you have a child who is, watching, who is watching too much YouTube, that is on their phone too much, that is playing too many video games, today is the day. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day to institute a screen time plan, period. Yeah. It has to be done. And if you're a parent calling, looking for an academic preschool, an academic, an ac academic kindergarten, these sorts of things, you have got to look at the research. You are setting, you are setting your student up for mental anxiety and stress. Right. And all of the screens and oh. open access to screens, open access to screens has got to stop yeah. in yeah. the hurried child. There yeah, you go. You, yeah. So there just, you have it. Yeah. There you have it. About this book. I, I mean, there you have it. We're doing this, this book club because the books and the research that is out there and every one of these has a different topic, but they all come down to the same thing. Same kids thing. Don't know how to raise themselves. Guess yeah. what? Kids can't raise themselves. So guess what we have to do? We have to make sure that parents, grandparents, caregivers are making decisions that benefit child development that lead to positive outcomes so that our children can succeed because exactly. right now, we're not raising children to succeed because all we care about is test scores, right? Right? And we think getting into college is the only thing that matters, uh, you know, and, and, and we have to start focusing on um, those executive, those executive function skills. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 so obviously, so, so, so obviously a lot of, a lot needs to be changed at the law level and the education level period. Yep. And that's going to take time because these people are stubborn, but Carrie and I are never going to quit. Nope. We are going to nope. do this until we can't stand anymore. Yep. And we promise you, we are going to bring change within schools. It's going okay. to happen, period. But right now, today, us as SLPs, us as parents can make a change to get our kids outside, to get our kids playing, to yep. get kids off of their screens. It yep. is hurting it is hurting them. It is hurting their executive functions. And yes, it may help them get through the day without any behaviors, but you are setting them up for a life where they're not going to be able to deal with experiences. They're not, going to be, they're, not, they're not going to be able to deal with a boring job. Mm -hmm. They're not going to be able to deal with, with, uh, with peer interactions at work. They're mm -hmm. not going to be able to live independently because mm -hmm. they spent their entire adolescence in front of a screen. So parents, grandparents, just like you said, yep. a change has to be done. Stop being afraid to be the bad guy. Right. Take the screens right. away and make it happen now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the quotes from the book that I just jotted down is that, you know, when now this isn't true for a lot of private schools, but for public schools, schools are a reflection of the community. So I want you to yep. ponder that for a minute. Schools are a reflection of the community. So what I want to I want to talk about is what if we take that a step further and say, you know, our children's behavior is a reflection of our behavior. If we're on our screen incessantly, what are our kids learning, right? Children yes. learn yes. by watching who? Who do they learn? They may not listen to us as parents, but they certainly imitate us, right? Yes, so they do. children learn. So how do we handle stress? Are we over are we overbooking ourselves? Are we running around like chickens with our heads cut off? Are we going from thing to thing? You know, are we always too busy? Um, do we not make time for family and for enjoyment? So our kids, if we're we have to model 
good executive function for our kids. Would you agree with that, Michael? That 100%. We need to model that, right? We need to model um, monitored screen time. We need to uh, model uh, being able to uh, be flexible thinkers and to not get upset when something breaks and, and you know, or, or, you know, not, not, how about this? Not flip our lid. Do you know what I mean by that? Where you know how so many parents will just blah, and start there you go. hollering. We need to learn, okay, how to uh, uh, be good models of executive functioning, have good self-control. Um, so I, I think that there, there's a lot that we can do that isn't going to cost anybody a penny. Not one single penny. We're not saying this is going to take money. We're saying this takes awareness and a commitment to change. And I hope that we can, we can help that happen. Absolutely. So if you're a parent watching us, if you uh, work in a school, so everything, every week we're, t we're, we're picking these books very, very carefully. Mm -hmm. And all of these books highlight the research uh, and they highlight exactly what needs to be changed. And he ended, he ended this chapter in such a beautiful way. Let me find it here. Uh, so we, we always talk about early intervention. Early intervention is critical. The change has got to start there. The majority of the change has to start there. Screen-free, 100% screen-free early intervention, uh, pre-K, kindergarten, sure. and also a, a complete elimination of the cognitive hypothesis. Right. So he says, it's hard to argue with the science behind early intervention. Those first few years matter so much in the healthy development of a child's brain. They represent a unique opportunity to make a difference in a child's future. But one of the most promising facts about programs that target emotional, psychological, and neurological pathways is that they can be quite effective later on in childhood too. Much so more than cognitive interventions. Wow, what do you know? Yep. Pure, pure IQ is stubbornly resistant to improvement after eight years old. Yep. But executive functions and the ability to handle stress, manage strong emotions can be improved sometimes dramatically well into adolescence and even adulthood. And and there you I have it. Highlighted. I love that there you have it. Because there you go. Absolutely perfect. So guys, chapter two, which we're going to do next week, is actually called How to Build Character. So I am pretty excited. Uh, That's going to be a good one. Chapter. So we hope that you will join us next Monday. I'm not sure what the date is. Maybe the 12th, it looks like, mm -hmm. um, 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and Michael and I will continue to take our notes. And um, we appreciate not only you joining us, but telling your friends about it and your colleagues and um, other people who you think might be interested. Obviously, we can't uh, affect change all on our own. Uh, but we are just trying to um, open a conversation that hopefully is multidisciplinary, you know, um, both professionals, parents. Um, eventually, I think Michael and I would like to get in front of school boards and it's gonna uh, happen. administrators and eventually, you know, get to that political realm where we can actually affect change. But yeah, there's going to there's going to need to be a mindset change um across the board big time and and this next chapter next monday i am already so pumped for next monday monday is the new friday like we always yep, say yep. <laughs> this 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 chapter how to build character i both of us are rereading this book from from previously yep. and this chapter i remember i remember reading this chapter and just loving it yep. this chapter coming up how to build character everyone's always asking how do I build executive functioning? What do I do? What are the, what are the things I can start doing today? That's what this chapter is all about. And a yep. little pre, a little preview. It's about relationships and experiences. So so just so you know, 
this next Monday is going to be a really, really, really good one. And if you guys are tuning into these chapter chats to get little tidbits that you can start using with your kids and your students, next Monday is going to be a really, really good one. Yep. So this is the book, How Children Succeed. Um, there's only five chapters. So yeah. three weeks left with this one. And then Michael and I are going to have to decide. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, we've got lots of good options. Oh, we already picked Finland. We're doing Finland. We picked the finished, finished lessons. Yes. Yeah, yes. we finished. Yeah, I'll just show everybody in case um, this is what we're doing for our second book. So finish lessons because the way Finland I say, runs. I say we do free to learn. I want to do free to learn third. Oh, it's going to run a little bit. So Let's do that one. I wrote that, that one down. This book, um, I have lent it to so many people. I actually had to buy a second one because I'm always lending <laughs> it out. And it is, it's one of those where it shocks you. Some of the things that go, you know, I, it's just, it's intense. Um, Peter Gray takes it um, over the top, but I think that's what we need. We need forward thinkers. We need people to look at the evidence and we need people who don't have any monetary gain. Yes. Um, in yes. education. Does that make yes. sense? We need 100, people who absolutely. curriculum who yep. aren't selling iPads or Chromebooks. I mean, you yep. have to get unbiased um, professionals, uh, passionate, unbiased uh, uh, thinking minds in order to affect change in education. So when you look at a lot of the educational laws that have, pa have, have passed, whether it's No Child Left Behind, IDA, you really get into the nitty gritty of those laws. You'll see in the Common Core how much money went to Pearson yeah. How much money went That's to Lingua Systems? Yep. Like, it, it, it's really ridiculous how much we are monetizing our children yep. and, and we're monetizing education. Yeah. It's, it's terrible. And it starts in infancy. I showed you this book last week, Bye Bye Baby. Yeah. This is all about the commercialization of childhood. Yep. You know, why do you have to buy diapers and wipes and shoes and jammies and cups and plates that have Elmo on them or have Frozen, yeah. Elsa from Frozen, because we've commercialized childhood. So please understand this starts in infancy and then it's continued on in education because somebody's making big money. Somebody's right. making money off the right. and the, the textbooks and everything. So what we need to do is figure out how to take that, how to not make education so commercialized, right? And how to exactly. make it about um, brain development and about relationships and about executive functions. And if we can get there, we can affect change for generations of children to come. And that's so someone, someone here asked about finished lessons. Uh -huh. want to hold that one up for the author? Yes, this is the second one we're doing. There's This is Finished yep. Lessons 2.0. There is a more recent version, 3.0, but there's not a ton of difference between them. This is the one I had on my shelf, so we're going to do this one. Um, the, Saulberg is the author. Do you see there? There you go. S-A-H-L. So you can yep. just get all of these on Amazon. I order every book. You can see I have shelves and shelves of, of <laughs> books. Um, this one, I just, I already told Michael, I think we need to go to Finland after we do this one. Let's and really do it. Check it out. So Let's do it. So if we have Finnish followers, I would love to know. But um, it's pretty amazing. Finland and um, uh, there's another great book. I know we need to be done. But um, it actually talks about the Pol Poland and how Poland used to be one of the, the, they used to have one of the worst education systems and they completely revamped it. And it was just there you fascinating go. to read how there they you go. So all, all, these, all these other countries have done a 180 with yeah. their educational system. It was yeah. in trouble. They looked at the facts. They looked at the research. They turned it around. America is not doing that, period. Yeah. 
Oh, that's yeah. a great book. That's a have great book. Have you read book. this one? Yeah, yeah. I, I have. Yeah, that's a really good one. three different yes. countries and how yep. they turned their education system around. Yep. And it just, again, blew my mind. So, yeah, yep. we've got book after book after book after book to study, but we're going to finish up. We have three more weeks left on how children succeed, and then we are going to move into finish lessons. Um, uh, what what can the world learn from educational change in Finland? I think we're going to go. So oh, it's going to be excited. great. All right, guys, thanks for joining. We will see you next Monday night for our third episode of Chapter Chat. Thanks. Thank you guys so much. Yeah, great time. See you guys next week. Bye-bye. You ready for Monday?